Всім добрий вечір. Всі ми тут. On behalf of the brave. We have freedom. Give us wings to protect it. Наші військові тут, громадяни суспільства тут, всі ми тут захищаємо нашу незалежність, нашу державу. Так буде і далі. Слава нашим захисникам, слава нашим захисницям. Слава Україні! Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tochny Weekly, the show where we get behind the headlines to analyze and discuss the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Tochny broadcasts every week on Sunday at this time, so please do follow the main account for updates on interviews and other projects that we do. Uh, Tochny is now available on basically every podcast platform ever, so uh, thanks so much to the efforts of our production staff. I can't list this massive list every week, but uh, you can now find us on the following. Spotify Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible. Google Podcasts, CastBox, Pocket Casts, Overcast, Radio Public, SiriusXM, Stitcher, Pandora, and Simplecast. Uh, so thanks so much to the efforts of our production staff for making that happen. We really appreciate it. And please uh, retweet the space, uh, let people know about the podcast, and uh, rate us on any one of those platforms through whatever rating mechanism they have if you enjoy our content. Thanks so much. We are working hard on some new projects, so thanks uh, everyone for your support and feedback. Uh, we do have an excellent show for you this week. First, we will be discussing raids in modern military operations with Charles Rye. Uh, next, we'll be joined by Vassal from Dnipro to discuss the recent terror attacks on that city. And next, John Ridge will discuss F-16s to Ukraine with aviation experts. Wings of freedom. So uh, without any further delay, Charles, uh, over to you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Joseph. Um, yeah, it was an interesting week, I would say, in, in terms of the, the biggest military news that we saw on on the ground was this raid into the Belgorod Oblast. And, you know, we were discussing, just to give everybody a little look behind the curtain here, we were discussing in, inside of Tochny, what were the events that were happening? How was it happening? And how important was it? And what I found very, very interesting about the raid in Belgorod was there seemed to be a perception amongst many commentators or observers on social media that this was a very novel, very new um, tactic or approach. And so today what I wanted to talk about is just about raiding in general because this is one of those elements in this war where it's, it's a very, very old thing, but it has modern aspects to it. And so that's what I wanted to look at today. Raiding goes back centuries the raid that we saw this week in the Belgorod Oblast shares common characteristics with things that we have seen in the 20th century, in the 19th century, and even beyond that. Even though that they're using more modern weapons, um, that there are the new aspect of social media, that's the biggest um, additional aspect that has changed this type of operation, but the actual operation itself is fairly standard. And in fact, I think um, this is something that we have seen a lot in this Russian invasion of Ukraine um, at a smaller scale. This one, of course, has high publicity. But I wanted to, to look into the topic of rating 
Um, talk a little bit about the effects, what you're trying to do. What we did inside of Tochni was we collected a bunch of questions. Um, we collected some various aspects of rating and why you do it, how you do it, and specifically, like, what is the effect of this one on, on Russia? Luckily, we've got uh, Jonathan today to, to help kind of ask some of those questions. If anybody in the audience has questions, they're, of course, welcome to uh, raise their hand and come up, and, and we can discuss rating, what it is, what it isn't, and, and how does it work, if that's all right. So maybe, Jonathan, shall we go ahead and get started? Yeah, thanks, Charles. I mean, my first question, I guess, is why they decided to choose this location. And it got me wondering about the type of ISR preparation that this rating team may have had, how they utilized it. So I was wondering how important is aerial observation to decide where the target of the raid is? Do they simply look down there and think, oh, there's five guys there. That's our place. Are there other considerations? Sure. So um, to bring everybody into the acronym, so ISR is Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance. I think John has, in previous podcasts, um, has talked about an, a newer one. I think it's ISTAR. But for today, I'm just going to use ISR, so Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance. And that is an important part of conducting a raid and looking at the situation we have now. So what that means is on the intelligence side, and you're going to do what's called an, an ISR or an IPB, an intelligence preparation of the battlefield. So you're going to pull together all of your hum human intelligence. Have you received any phone calls? Um, have you heard any rumors? Um, have you captured anyone? Who are the forces that are there? What is their morale? What kind of equipment do they have? You're going to pull any signal intelligence you have in terms of uh, radio traffic. If you've intercepted anything, such as even text messages nowadays on, on mobile phones, radio communications, and so on. You'll take um, geospatial intelligence, which is all of your satellites or aerial reconnaissance that you have looking down onto it. And this is going to help you determine, okay, where is the enemy weaker in one spot than another? What is a potential mission objective that that we can use and this is very old of course it's a bit more high technology nowadays but that's the basic idea now is it oh we see they only have five guys there let's do a mission it can indeed be that simple if they see that this border outpost was lightly defended if they knew that the closest russian forces in this area would be uh, 24 to 36 hours away. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they had to be that far uh, to drive there. But what was their readiness level? How many vehicles did they have running? What was their troop readiness? And if they know how long their response time might be to such an incursion, then that tells you, okay, well, then we can define a mission set, we can achieve an objective, which takes 24 to 36 hours before a larger unit comes. Because in a raid, obviously, you're not trying to take any territory. You're not trying to hold anything. All you're basically trying to do is to destroy certain targets, maybe capture certain individuals, or demoralize, confuse the enemy, get them to move around, and, of course, gather intelligence. So if you know from your ISR picture, okay, there, there aren't a lot of forces there. Uh, we know from our human intelligence or from our signal intelligence, they aren't very ready. Maybe they're, you know, half of their vehicles are broken down. I don't know the exact case in, in this one, what the readiness of the, of the Russian forces were. 
We know that their most likely course of action is that they are going to try to use fixed-wing attack aircraft or rotary aircraft to try to stop such an incursion in, in the meantime. Then that tells you, okay, well, we can go forward and we can try to attack a couple of villages before we need to go ahead and pull out because we don't want to get pinned down into a decisive engagement. Our whole goal is to go in and then run. And a raid is essentially just that. It has been for the last 200 years, go in and just run. Uh, my great great grandfather was a cavalry a cavalry soldier uh, in the in the Civil War, and uh, that's pretty much what he spent four years doing was uh, going on raids and then running. And the one that we saw this week was not a whole lot different. Yeah, thanks, Charles. The next question I've got for you, I guess, is the sparse manning of that border and uh, what that tells us about the Russians' available resources in that area. Right, and this is where it comes down to the this comes to the effects of this. Maybe we can touch on that again later. But if we go from the the furthest northern point of the existing front line, so the line of contact north of Kupiansk, if we on the Ukrainian border in the far northeast of of Ukraine, if we go from there, the Ukrainian Russian border is about eight hundred kilometers, about five hundred miles long which means that that border on the northern side of Ukraine is actually longer than the existing front line. So all the way through Donbass, through Zaporizhia, along the Dnipro River is actually shorter than the northern border between uh, Ukraine and Russia. So to say that they were sparsely manned there is not a surprise. Both sides are sparsely manned there. Essentially, neither side believes that or knows that the that the other side can um, mount an attack through there. So therefore, they allocate all of their resources, not just their soldiers, but also ISR capabilities in terms of surveillance. This means um, satellite. This means um, AWACS. This means all kinds of uh, radar, whatever it is. There's a lot of it posted on that Donbass-Saparizia line because that's the line of contact. So the fact that the Russians were sparsely manned there is not a surprise at all. And that's where I think we get into the dilemma of what do the Russians do because the effect of this, if we look at the range of Russian options, they have kind of two extreme bad options with a line of gradient between them. You know, one bad option is they decide, okay, well, we can tolerate this kind of incursion and we're, you know, our, our force allocation whether it even be sorties or drone flights or whatever it may be, engineering equipment, uh, fortifications, if they, they could say on one side, this is adequate and we will tolerate raids like this with our 36-hour response time out of Belgorod City and we'll say, okay, Ukraine, if you want to conduct raids into our territory, you can go this 6 to 10 kilometers before you have to run. That's tolerable for us. Okay, that's one side. On the other side, there is the idea, okay, well, every they decide that every meter of Russian territory is critical. Okay, so then they have to dedicate the resources to do that. It doesn't necessarily have to be all the tanks and the BMPs, but it certainly has to be more reconnaissance, more surveillance assets, and so on to be able to predict or to prevent and to react to something like that. So they have kind of this, between those two extremes, there's a lot of things that they can do, but 
all of that is bad for them in terms of the length of this line. This essentially means for the Russian side, they need to consider a, a doubling of the, line, the, the length of the front line in their invasion of Ukraine. So we, we'll see what, how they react to that. But the fact that the border was sparsely manned uh, was not particularly surprising. I think what was interesting was their reaction time. And this is where it comes into the modern new element of warfare, which is social media. So what was interesting about this raid was from the tactical side, it was a very classic, simple raid. But what makes it so much more effective in on the modern battle space is Telegram and Twitter and how news media react to stories breaking in Telegram or Twitter or Facebook or whatever it may be, because this makes the political cost or the risk assessment when they're trying to figure out how to handle this, it skews that differently. If we go back in time, say prior to social media, you know, what are the chances that this raid would have even really been picked up in like the New York Times or, um, or Der Spiegel or something like that? Uh, what are the chances that people would have been able to follow this? And the Raiders very much knew that, and that was part of their tactics to leverage this information sharing, this social media aspect of it to augment the military activities. Thanks, Charles. I'm delighted to say Exit 266 is here. Welcome, Exit. Please go ahead. Thank you so much. Um, so, Charles, you kind of touched on it there for just a second at the end, but you talked about the tactical implications of this. What are the implications on the Russian public and how they view the abilities of forces from Ukraine or forces maybe that have Ukrainian help? Yeah, so that, I mean, that's an interesting question, and that's what, that's what I find so fascinating, and I'll try to address it. But what I find so fascinating is, is a very, very classical military attack is the effects of it are augmented by this social media side. And, you know, it was clear, I mean, the objectives of this raid were designed to help augment that social media side. So they went after symbols of uh, Russian state infrastructure. And so, you know, they, they weren't going to destroy supply depots. They weren't going to try to capture certain people. And so I heard people say, well, it's an info op. And I was like, well, it's not really an info op. It's just a raid. But because we have this social media landscape, because we have this information technology all around us, you can actually try to augment the effects of that. So I haven't, I don't, I don't dig deep into Russian perception or public opinion or anything like that. But just as a horse draw, you know, horse cavalry back in the 1800s would travel through the countryside on a raid to try to demoralize or try to um, show that the state is not in charge and your army is ineffective because they cannot defend you. That's essentially what we've seen here, just in a 21st century version of it. Fantastic. Thank you, Exit. Thank you, thank you Charles. Charles, I guess my next question is this raiding force going across the border into the territories of the Russian Federation, how does it look to conceal itself before the raid? And if it is spotted, how does it avoid indicating the direction they intend to attack? Yeah, so, th so that's an interesting thing. And, and I think it 
it goes back to the capabilities between the two different forces in terms of what they can see and what they can process and what they know. So this intelligence preparation, this battlefield, this ISR. So, I mean, it seems fairly clear um, over the last months that the armed forces of Ukraine have a, a very clear picture of what is happening on the Russian side. And it also seems clear that the Russians have a more fuzzy view of what is happening behind the lines on the Ukrainian side. But ISR resources, just like anything else, whether it be number of bullets or number of tanks, ISR resources are also in limited capability. So what the Ukrainians will have done, because with reconnaissance, let me back up a second, with reconnaissance, uh, always what you're trying to do is you're trying to establish what are the limits of my enemy's capability and how do they react when something happens. So if I'm thinking about, you know, how do they conceal themselves and how do they avoid indicating a direction? How do they maintain surprise, basically? I'm just going to make up some numbers here. But let's just say that Ukraine knows that Russia can see into across their into their into ukrainian territory 30 kilometers so for whatever reason they would have tested this they would have probed this they will have pulled out different intelligence and they will say okay from our best guess the russians can see what is going on 30 kilometers over the border well with the light mobile units such as you know wheeled vehicles and so on just don't put your staging areas within 30 kilometers put them 50 kilometers away Right. And then therefore, by the time that you actually begin the attack, your assembly area is already beyond what you believe the, the Russians can see. And so you can maintain that uh, that surprise. And, and this will be the cat and mouse, because now Russia has to determine, OK, well, this is all notional here. I'm, I'm just making up numbers. But let's just say, OK, Russia decides, well, let's allocate more ISR resources. Let's have more flyovers. Let's have more satellite passes. Let's uh, dedicate a team towards the nor northern border to analyze all of this stuff. Let's just say they ex expand that boundary from 30 to 50 kilometers. So through the cat and mouse of warfare, you set up an assembly area, it gets hit by artillery. Okay, now you know the Russians can see us further away. So now you move your assembly area 50 kilometers back. So it, it just kind of goes back and forth like that. But what you're doing there is you're forcing the Russians to allocate resources to be able to see further to try to predict or to prevent these kinds of raids. And those are ISR resources that will be needed desperately in a counteroffensive or along the the, line, the main line of contact um, in Donbass or Zaporizhia. So it sounds like you're saying that raids could be a portion or a tactic that you use as somewhat of a shaping operation coming into a counteroffensive. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but also is there, I assume there's some historical precedents for when those types of things have been used as shaping operations in the past in other conflicts? Yeah. So, um, I think your interpretation right now is correct in terms of the timing of this, um, and and that's exactly what I'm what I'm meaning. What I what I'm trying to differentiate here is is that you know causing a dilemma for your enemy like a raid like this does not necessarily have to be linked as a shaping operation. So when I think of a shaping operation, 
I think of basically backwards planning from where you expect your main effort to be. And that's the idea of shaping it in that, okay, now I have an idea, I have a, I have a plan, this is where my main effort is going to be in this area on this date, and I'm going to work backwards from that to develop a mission set to help give me the best conditions for that main effort as possible. Now, raids can certainly be part of that. And I would argue that the effects of this raid and the timing of this raid can certainly be considered a shaping operation, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Does that make sense? Exit. Sorry, yeah, that totally makes sense. Thank you. I guess my next question, Charles, is the kind of targets that, that are priority targets but for this raid. Can you tell us a little bit about these targets? We saw, for example, the, the Gravion checkpoints uh, that building with a Russian flag torn down. Why were these targets chosen? Right. So it seems quite clear that, I mean, this, this target was to demoralize, confuse the Russians and to also gather intelligence. So there was no, I would say there was, there was nobody specific to capture or to kill. There was no supply point um, in particular that we saw to disrupt. Those weren't there. So, so what the raid in this case, the objectives were, and I'll just keep this simple, is just go into Russia and raise hell against the Russian state. Attack uh, anything of state structure in Russia, whether that be the border checkpoint or a city hall or a flag. I didn't see anything in terms of a monument or anything like that, but that might also that might also be something that would be in that target list. You know, is basically go in there, go into the city hall, steal all the computers, tear down the flag take a bunch of pictures, post them on Telegram, burn the place down, and run. It's actually kind of that simple of a mission briefing, and don't get caught. And we'll let you know when the Russians are coming, because we'll give you enough time to get out of there. I hear you. That don't get caught bit kind of apparent, I think, for us laymen out here. Because from what we've seen, it you know, I'm just speculating here, a couple of these uh, raiders may have been killed. But is it fair to say that if they, any of them had been taken prisoner, that we would have seen some evidence of this by now. So, yeah, I believe so. I mean, I think um, judging past your uh, uh, Russian responses to uh, to things like this, um, they're not hesitant about trying to highlight how effective they are in, in, in doing something. And if they were able to hinder or to stop this kind of raid and to capture any of the, the people who are party to that, I think we definitely would have seen them uh, in, in high-profile videos, often against war crimes, but I don't know. But I just wanted to highlight, because we talked, to, just to touch on the objective set, you know, and what the goals in this one were. I mean, one of the characteristics of a raid is that it always has a really limited objective set, like what are you supposed to do, because speed and surprise are the thing, and you do not want to get pinned down. Your whole idea is to get in and get out as quickly as possible and achieve whatever your mission was. And, you know, we have seen raids along the line of contact for months and months and months. I, I would hazard to bet that they happen every single night. Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure they do happen every single night with troops who are in close contact to one another, putting together a squad size or a platoon size element and, and raiding the opposing fighting positions either to, to capture someone or to gain some kind of intelligence or, like I said, to try to determine what the enemy's local, most likely course of action is. So, um, so for example, if I want to test how fast the Russians can call for fire, I order a raid, I attack a position, 
And then I start the stopwatch and see, okay, well, how long does it take them to actually bring down the fire? Because then I can put that into other missions and I can say, okay, well, it takes them four hours to call for fire. And given that a certain type of unit is there, a certain type of equipment, um, and so on. Now I know that for my next attack, I have four hours. And after, you know, three hours and 59 minutes, I need to be telling my guys to either get out or we need to be pushing so far through that we're no longer in that position. So raids are used all the time, um, basically on a daily basis. I would be very surprised if they weren't nightly um, to gather intelligence, uh, gather human intelligence, uh, meaning POWs, um, to demoralize the enemy and so on. This one just happened to be a bit bigger in scale and um, and a bit more prominent because the use of modern social media was part of the mission plan. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thanks, Charles. I mean, I, looking at that first tweet in the nest uh, for our live listeners and our Spotify and Apple listeners can find this on our main account. These guys are traveling, well, light. They're light infantry or mechanized, I guess you'd call it. I'm just wondering, what's the plan when they encounter large concentrations of, of the enemy? Yeah, well, the plan's quite simple. Uh, run. Um, <laughs> try to disengage, uh, so to lay down some 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 fire and um, put the vehicle in reverse or turn around and go back the way you came. Um, you do not want to be um, engaged in a decisive, in any kind of decisive effort. You have to assume on a raid that you will only have an advantage in the moment of surprise. Once that moment of surprise is passed, you're going to be outnumbered. And this is where I think we see, you know, looking at the at the next two images from that video in the nest, you know, we can see basically Russians brought in forces to deal with the raid. Appears that's what they're doing. They start to enter a, a compound or a house. And this is where if you're the raiding party, you know, connection with not only drones for Overwatch, but also your indirect fires, whether they're mortars or artillery, is very important. Um, because if you're trying to avoid contact, but you want to know where the enemy is so that you can hit them with artillery. I can remember all of our raiding maneuvers that, that I did in, in the U.S. Army. It was completely standard that when we would walk off the objective, mine were mostly dismounted, walk off the objective, we were immediately calling for artillery fire on the objective that we had just hit. So anytime we were leaving somewhere, we were calling for fire to hit it. So that link is is quite important. But yeah, we did not want to get into contact at all. You were really trying to stay out of contact and not get into it. I'm going to ask you a question on artillery in a minute, Charles. But just, just on that uh, topic, I'm just wondering when they do engage the enemy, such as that house, the greenhouse in the, uh, in the second tweet in the nest, why are they, why are they choosing to engage this? Well, what it looks like to me in that, um, and I don't have the full context of exactly what had happened before, when the time was and so on, but what it looks like essentially is that um, a number of Russian soldiers, um, I don't know, I'm going to say about 50 or so, uh, were dropped off into this area with trucks. And I'm going to presume that this was the Russian reaction force or part of the Russian reaction force to deal with this raid. And once they entered that building and they were consolidated, it, it just made sense that that the raiders uh, called in for artillery to go ahead and, and take them out. Even if they didn't plan to take that 
building, you still, of course, uh, want to make the enemy pay uh, if you can. And and that's all it was. So that's what I saw. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I just I was wondering because it's not uh, it doesn't look like a government administrative building. Yeah, that that's, uh, that makes sense. Thanks. So earlier this week, we saw the Russians claim that they were struck by high Mars at the, the Gravion checkpoint. Whether they were just shelling themselves for a, for a bit of drama, uh, for one of their terrible propaganda videos, we'll never know. But what kind of artillery support does a raid such as this require? Well, I don't know. I, I don't know if it was high Mars or not. Um, I'd have to ask um, somebody who's much deeper into the OSINT than I am what exact type of munition it might have been. Um, be, being that it was directly on the border, I don't know why they would need such such a weapon to shoot that far. And it has been in the past that the Russians have attributed things to HIMARS, which were not actually HIMARS. But maybe maybe just to be, I don't want to be too blunt here, but I mean, the goal of warfare is to kill the other, is to kill the other side. So if I've left border checkpoint, I, and I've torn it up a bit, you know, burned it or whatever. And I know that, you know, a bunch of guys from the enemy are going to be there. Yeah, I'm going to hit it with artillery as much as I can. So one of the advantages of all these kinds of attacks, and this this is what we often talk about when, when we say a unit has the initiative, one side has the initiative or not. The benefit of having the initiative of doing something like this is you cause your enemy to react, and then you can you can playbook their activities. You know what the enemy is going to do. And if you know what the enemy is going to do, then you can make them pay for it. So yeah, when you leave the border checkpoint, you know the Russians are going to come to the border checkpoint. So the goal in this is to kill Russians, and that's what they're going to do. Yeah, so that makes sense. I mean, they're traveling light. They, they can't wheel, a, wheel some kind of low-moving, perhaps, vehicle or artillery piece behind them. Yeah, thank you, Charles. That's a good up. No, and, and just to, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, that could even be pre-planned in that, you know, say they've decided, you know, 18 hours after all of the raiding party is back inside of friendly territory, we're going to hit the, we're going to hit that border checkpoint or any of the targets that they have reported that they have hit. So it doesn't even have to be reported anymore that the raiding party doesn't even have to call for the fire. That's already pre-planned when the raiding party gets back at, you know, H plus four hours, we're going to hit this target. H plus eight hours, we're going to hit that target. H plus 12 hours, we're going to hit this target just to make the, the Russians pay for reacting. Thank you, Charles. I guess my last question, before I ask it, I should say, if anyone's got any questions for Charles on this, please feel free to request the mic. You're very welcome. I guess my last question, Charles, is strategically, and I, I know Exit touched upon this earlier, the kind of strategic effects that this raid potentially has. They were caught on the hop here. What what do you think the the, the longer-term impact of this of this raid will be? Yeah, so we will see. And and I think, yeah, we touched on this before, but it, I think it helps to reiterate, you know, this, this raid that we saw this week was notable for two reasons. One was its social media impact in what we could consider a relatively slow military week in terms of, you know, everybody's waiting on a counteroffensive. The world is sort of on pins and needles waiting, waiting for something like this to happen. It had a massive impact on the, on the uh, media space which, of course, uh, limits the Russians' ability to handle this dilemma. Whether, did it have a military impact? Like, did it take any ground? Did it destroy anything notable? No, it didn't. Is it a, a fairly standard raid? Yes, we've seen them before. We will see them uh, in, in the future as well. 
but again, it goes back to this dilemma of what, how the Russians handle this. On one side, the Russians can say, okay, we will defend every single meter of our territory. And that means basically doubling the, the front lines of, of the way they are now. That doesn't necessarily have to be completely troops and trenches, but it certainly means reallocating a lot of assets. Um, that would be intelligence and surveillance assets. That means fixed-wing aircraft assets, uh, rotary-wing aircraft assets. That means engineering and so on. And that costs a lot of money, costs a lot of time, and draws away from the other areas of the line. Russia is a very big country, but it has constrained resources, as we have seen. So they have poured everything into Iraq, or excuse me, into Ukraine. That was a bad one. But into Ukraine, everything that they do that is not along the front line of, of, of contact is going to hurt them in Donbass and Zaporizhia. They could do that. Or... As I mentioned on the other extreme, they could say we tolerate this kind of rating and they would have to spin this in some way in the in the political realm and basically say, OK, we feel that we've effectively handled this raid and we're OK with it. It took us 36 hours or 24 hours or so to stop it. It only went a certain distance and Ukraine or, or partisan or whoever it is, if you want to do this again, have at it and it's tolerable. Somewhere along that line, they're going to have to make a decision. Both of those decisions are bad. So it was a very effective raid in that it achieved its objectives. I don't think it will be the last one, but we will see what the Russian response is, how much, so to say, they take the bait uh, in terms of a shaping operation. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed, Charles. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to explain that today. Thank you. Oh, I think you've got one last question. So uh, exit, please go ahead. Sorry, just to expand on that last point, um, if they do say that they're going to, for instance, tolerate those incursions, presumably though that um, leaves your public in those towns that they keep pushing out or would have to keep evacuating, being rather miffed with you that they aren't valuable enough to be protected. And at some point that frustration could grow into something useful or is that not really something they're concerned about? Yeah. So I, I, it's very difficult for me to predict how, how the Russians will react. I can just kind of point to the two sides and I mean, I just put a hypothetical here and say, all right, because I mentioned as a continuum, they may say, okay, we don't want to tolerate it clearly but they could come out and say, all right, we order an evacuation of everybody within 10 kilometers of the Ukrainian border, for example. That would be one way, um, in air quotes, for them to look at this and, and to try to mitigate this. But they don't, have, they don't have a good option. There's no right answer for the Russians. Whichever way they go is bad. And that's exactly what the Ukrainians want to do. That's why they did it. But that would be one area in that extreme. Another area in that extreme might be, okay, well, you know, we are going to, how do I say this? You know, we're, we, we might evacuate certain villages along main roads. This raid was on a, on a main road across the border. And they may say that, okay, everybody who lives within 20 kilometers of a border checkpoint will have to be evacuated, just for example. But that doesn't require reallocating any forces. 
but that's a step along that continuum. There are lots of steps along this. And, you know, they may say they if they allocate soldiers to this, they may say that, okay, we're going to put up a lot more uh, fortifications, these um, uh, pyramids or roadblocks or, or anything like that. That's what the Ukrainians have done along their Belarusian border and along their side of the border is they've uh, basically heavily fortified it to uh, take into account that they don't have the soldiers to fully man it. So I, I'm not sure what the Russians are going to do. Yes, if it's, I think it's very politically difficult for them to look at this and just say, okay, that's okay. Ukraine, please just do that whenever you want. But again, that's one extreme of their response. I think it'll be somewhere in the middle, just like the other end of the extreme and completely allocating forces to the entire front border, or the northern border, I also think is, is impossible for them. But the solution should be someplace in the middle. Okay, thank you, Exit, and thank you, Charles. It gives me great pleasure to uh, welcome Vassal, who is a uh, lawyer living in Dnipro, who has been witnessing firsthand the war from his city, which has been continuously under attack by Russia during this war, and he has kindly given up his time to speak to us today. Vassal, well, welcome back to Tochny. It's a great pleasure to have you here again. Uh, hello, everybody. Um, thank you for this uh, proposition to uh, tell you information about the uh, situation in Dnipro uh, in such time. You're welcome, everybody. Thank you, sir. Vassal, can you tell me about your experience of the last week in Dnipro? Uh, last week uh, for Dnipro was uh, very, very bad. Uh, because uh, my city was attacked uh, several times, and uh, it is uh, it uh, attacks all time. But uh, last week was uh, uh, two attack uh, twice uh, attacked by I think more than twenty uh, missiles, rockets, or something else uh, objects. It was uh, in night. Uh, from uh, Sunday to Monday, uh, near three and a half uh, in the morning, uh, I heard uh, very loud explosions. I think it were maybe maybe ten or maybe lo uh, more. Um, it was uh, you, when uh, it's starting, you don't understand what is it. It is. Uh, air defense, explosions, or it is uh, explosions because uh, some objects was heated, you uh, uh, you um, when you hear this, uh, you, you feel fear, because you don't understand what is uh, happening now. Uh, and uh, in night uh, you hear such explosions, in the morning, I uh, read that uh, rescue team was um, rescue se rescue service in Dnipro was attacked by Russians and uh, destroy uh, destroyed more than twenty trucks rescue trucks and uh, also it was heated uh, a building of rescue service in Dnipro city and uh, next attack was on Thursday. Thursday night. Also, it was attacked uh, near four o'clock in the morning. Uh, 
And uh, in the morning after that was uh, also a missile attack when uh, polyclinic in Dnipro was, uh, I think, was res- uh, the polyclinic received uh, significant casualties, uh, significant uh, damages, and uh, I think near two or three people were killed and uh, 20 people were injured. Uh, last week was uh, not very good week for Nipper City, but uh, you should understand that all times is uh, war. Uh, Nipper City in uh, maybe one, two, three days, uh, you hear some explosions because air defense defend our city. But uh, this week it was more than always. I think they do such steps. First of all, they are terrorists and they attacked uh, civil civil people because they can. And the second aim, I think they understand that they can't uh, hit our uh, Kiev or hit it effectively. And they uh, try to uh, effectively attacked another city. I, I have such uh, thoughts about this. Uh, thank you, Basil. My condolences to your city. Oh, city, city, city people, people injured, people killed. It's it's tragedy for us. First of all, buildings you can rebuild, buildings you can build new. It's uh, traffic you can buy, but people, people die. It's very, very bad. People, people take a long time to build. I'm curious, have you noticed an increase in the effectiveness of air defense? And have you noticed more missile and drone attacks recently or, or less? Uh, as I said, I think uh, last time uh, attack Nipro uh, City was increased. Uh, because, uh, as I said before, maybe in night it was maybe one or two uh, air alert and uh, it don't produce any fear of people because people know one shahed or maybe two, one explosion and uh, everything is so-so but not bad. But uh, last week was, uh, as I said, uh, it was maybe, it was dozens of objects and that's why I think it was increased and um, I don't understand uh, in it doesn't have any military aim, any military aim, because they hit, as I said, rescue service, they hit, as I said, uh, polyclinic, they hit also one uh, industrial object, but it's not a military object, and and, and I don't uh, say uh, that because I have to say, I know that isn't any military aim. Any. Yes, and given the the care that some the staff at the polyclinic, uh, psychiatric clinic, what they had to um, perform on their patients, it would have been quite unlikely that, given the video and uh, image evidence we've seen, that it, it would have been difficult to get those patients to a shelter. I guess this leaves a 
leads me on to my next question for you, Basil. I, 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 I want to add, uh, you have to understand that when uh, this rocket, this missile attacked this polyclinic, uh, alert starts after. You don't have any time, any, even five seconds. You don't have to uh, go to the shelter or do something. I that I didn't know that Basil. Yeah, I, uh, this 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 situation was. We noticed that uh, alert start after attack. Maybe Russians uh, organized some uh, situation. I don't know why, but uh, some sometimes it happened in such way. Thank you for bringing that to us, Basil. During this war. You continue to have a job. You continue to post about your su the successes of your country and the concerns that are natural for any democratic country. Can you describe the basics of what your working life is like in Zenitpro? Uh, yeah, I want to say that uh, maybe first months after uh, Russian uh, unprovoked invasion, uh, the work almost stopped. But after this month, uh, uh, business uh, people uh, try to continue their working, and now uh, Dnipro city is alive, and uh, all almost all business which were working before the war, it is working now. Uh, I am a lawyer, a chief manager of a law firm, and our clients, different clients. First of all, it is a uh, business. It's some industrial um, business, some uh, transport business, uh, production business. Some business I I can't inform you, but they help uh, to produce some very um, very uh, very important for our warriors uh, objects. And uh, everyone is working. Even um, if you heard this uh, town, uh, Nikopol, it is in the Dnipropetrovsk region, city. Uh, it may be 40 kilometers uh, from Enerhodar. And Russians uh, hit by, uh, by artillery from Enerhodar to Nikopol. And I have in Nikopol uh, also clients. Uh, which are still working. Everybody uh, try to go on and uh, work and also help our warriors. Uh, maybe every day, every week, we donate money to uh, different units, to different peoples. We try to help each other because we understand that if we, uh, if we not support our army, uh, nobody will support. Uh, that is why. Ah, also, I want to say that uh, uh, court system, police system, uh, prosecutors uh, are still working in, and the system is still work. And uh, we have uh, even uh, try to reform, uh, to continue reform our uh, judiciary system, 
because we have uh, many problems in this sphere. I think the continuity of your country and its uh, and its way of life, despite this war, Basil, is something which is incredible to people like me in the West, and of course is absolutely inspiring. And uh, something which uh, I wanted to ask you about, which uh, I've just put up in the in, in the nest for our, our live listeners. Um, we we saw this week uh, Valentin uh, Sipovins climb to the top of Mount Everest where he unfurled the Ukrainian flag. This guy, is, I guess for a lot of Westerners, is symbolic of how we see ordinary Ukrainians carrying on their lives despite this war and the war crimes being perpetrated against your country. So I wanted to ask you, what does being a Ukrainian mean to you? Um, it's a very complicated question, but I try to answer. Um... Mm, I think uh, this uh, uh, is ver this very difficult for our nation, for our people. Time. Uh, I think uh, it is also uh, maybe it's very very complicated. Love to explain what I think about this. I think first of all I want to say that uh, we um, Ukrainians are very uh, very free love people we we want to be free we want we don't need any Tsar any people have to say how we have to do we it's first of all it's uh, war with with our with our freedom, with our understanding of freedom, and you fight for democracy. You won't uh, be like Russia. You won't need you. You don't need any tsar. You don't need any uh, another uh, who who say what you do, what you have to do. That you are nobody. Uh, you want to be free, and I think for that you feel when you are Ukrainian. Thank you, Russell. I have one more question for you. It's about your favorite place in in your enchanting city of, of Dnipro. Can you tell us a bit about where this is and, and why this is your favorite place? Uh, yeah, I can say. <laughs> As you know, our city is named Dnipro City uh, because it is situated on the Dnipro River. It's the main river in uh, Ukraine. Uh, and um, I think the best place in Dnipro, it is uh, embankment in our city. Uh, because we have a very nice embankment uh, across uh, the Dnipro River. I think it's more than 5 or even 10 kilometers. Um, and it is very, uh, it's, it's very cool and it's very nice place. Up in the nest, uh, Vassal, there is there's a couple of pictures there. Could you tell us a little bit about the uh, the landmark in the middle of this island? First of all, could you could you tell us a bit about this island? Yeah, it is uh, it is a uh, two name of this island. It is 
Tchenko Island or Monastirsky Island. And uh, it is an island on Dnipro River situated. You have, you can uh, go there, you can have a walk or jogging. It's a very nice place. And also there are some bases for uh, sports, for Olympic reserves of Ukraine. And uh, it's it's very cool place. Also, uh, there are very interesting objects. There were before war uh, zoo there. And also, it's where there were um, aqua museum of aqua and fish and others. There's, there's quite a lot, lot to do on that island, Vassal. It kind of reminds me of um, there's an island uh, uh, in Budapest, Margaret Island. There's a zoo there. You can go running around the outside of the islands. You can take those Segway things. I think I even drove a golf. Um, car into uh, a place I shouldn't have once there. It's uh, it, so- it sounds like somewhere you would take a visitor uh, to your city. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's I think is the best places of uh, our city. It's uh, there is another places uh, which are uh, cool uh, too, but uh, I think uh, this is the most. Fantastic. Thank you, Basil. Uh, Charles has a question for you. Go yeah, ahead. please. Yeah, thanks a lot. You know, I've had the pleasure to uh, speak with and work closely with Ukrainians over the past many months. And I really felt in January and February with the attacks on the power infrastructure, with the cold, a real exhaustion, um, a drop in morale and an anger, a frustration that I hadn't felt um, in the fall of last year. When I speak with people today, I, I feel almost a, a bit more like the, the spring has helped and, and the, the hopes of a counteroffensive that, that morale and there's, there's the opportunity to laugh again. Um, am, am I wrong with that? How, how would you perceive the trends of resilience and morale uh, thank you for a question i want to say that even uh, when uh, it was our energy uh, infrastructure was attacked when we don't have all time uh, light but um, i say that it's not a very big problem all people understand why and all people uh, understand that it is uh, a russia terrorist state and not many people i think maybe one percent, maybe two, say, oh, it's bad. Everyone understands why. And uh, that is why uh, everyone hope and everyone believes that we will stand strong and we will be more strong than before. And uh, now, uh, when it is spring, uh, everyone is uh, believed in our counteroffensive or maybe offensive. But we understand that... Uh, Maybe we can make this even earlier, but we don't make this because of uh, of some strategic issues, I think. And it's issues not only about our capabilities. I think it's uh, some maybe political strategic aims. 
while we should should rely maybe a little uh, fancy and people that i know they everyone have hope and nobody say oh it's too bad what will be tomorrow everything with moral is okay uh, thank you very much for answering that i appreciate it uh yeah and also <laughs> because we uh, donate maybe every day to our units or to another people which were injured and that is why you understand you have to work hard and to support our people or support our soldiers my friend which is lieutenant in uh, some units i will not say about what is the units but uh, they uh, last week collect money for two intelligence uh, drones uh, shark it's named and i think we will go on in such way and everything will be good. Thank you, Basil. Oh, oh Charles, go ahead, please. Yeah, maybe just to touch on that because I, I find this is this interesting and, and um wanted to ask this question for a while, but you know, the the crowdsourcing or the social aspect of this war is, is very fascinating to me, especially within Ukrainian society, seeing people from the very beginning pull together to to help their soldiers and things that may be taken for granted of by Western armies or even the Russian army as something provided by the government is taken over by individual volunteers and donations and so on. Could you describe maybe in, in Dnipro itself, you know, how, you know, if do I just, after work, do I go to a, a kitchen to help prepare meals for the soldiers? Or how is this all organized? How much of a daily part of life is supporting the guys at, and, and, the, and women at the front lines? Um, thank you for the question. Different people support, support in different ways. I uh, know people who support, who it's um, more uh, about women that they cooked something or maybe uh, they uh, make such drink for our soldiers. It's named Campos, I don't know English words of this. And uh, I think somebody is uh, half of the day is volunteering. I, as a lawyer, we have uh, pro bono programs for our warriors, and we help our warriors with uh, judicial problems without pay anything. It's uh, absolutely free. Also, we donate. I think uh, our law firm have donated more than uh, half million hryvnias, maybe more. Uh, I don't can calculate. Uh, everyone who can do what he can. But uh, I think we have some people who don't uh, do anything, but I think it's normal because uh, not everybody in uh, all community standing that it's worth for, for our life. But uh, uh, significant uh, part of community is supporting in different ways. Some uh, children are collecting money, sell some little objects they manufactured by them and uh, give this money for volunteers fund. If you know, we have very big volunteers fund back in life. I think it's collected a billions of hryvna. As I heard last time, it's maybe six billions of hryvna uh, donated for them. It's very, very big money and... Uh, 
when the, this voluntary movement is very very important because uh, it's helped in such way where um, our government or our authorities uh, they can react so fast. Thank you, Vassal. I'd like to just say thank you for coming on Tochi again today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Uh, I want to say thank you, everybody, uh, to continue support Ukraine. It's very important for us to understand that we are not alone. It's very important. Thank you. You're most welcome, Vessel. Um, it gives me great pleasure to hand over to the, uh, the, the wonderful John Ridge. Over to you, John. Thank you very much, Jonathan, uh, Charles, Joseph, Vassal, and everybody else that has been up to speak. Uh, I am very pleased to say that we are now joined by uh, Alex, a friend of mine who is a uh, expert in all things related to the Ukrainian Air Force, Ukrainian air defense systems, and aviation topics in general. And we want to provide a, a, a broad level overview of what the landscape looks like for deliveries of European F-16s um, from this international coalition that appears to have formed um, to, to provide these aircraft to Ukraine and provide context for why Ukraine needs these aircraft, what specific capabilities will they bring, um, and what are some possible avenues along which the, the, the Ukrainian Air Force can bring these aircraft up to an operational status and uh, evolve their utility over time. Alex, thank you for joining us. Thanks for the introduction, John. So do we want to start out then with some brief background here? You know, first, why does Ukraine need Western fixed-wing uh, assets? Sure, I think that's a great way to get into it. Uh, the way I would um, propose to look at this is the, maybe to think of what Ukraine is using today to defend its airspace, which is a mixture of many, many Soviet-era ground-based air defense systems and not quite so many Soviet-era fighter jets. Uh, they're, they're doing uh, various functions, but ultimately it all boils down to uh, protecting the airspace. Uh, all those assets ultimately are on their way to becoming uh, either unavailable by uh, essentially being destroyed or, or deteriorating uh, technically. That mostly would affect the jets, the fighter jets, I would argue. And also uh, by simply running out of ammunition or, or becoming very, very constrained by a lack of a reliable supply of ammunition, which applies, in my opinion, more to the ground-based air defenses of the Soviet origin. So if Ukraine and uh, Ukraine's allies want the Ukrainian Air Force to be able to continue to defend the Ukrainian sky, uh, there needs to be uh, something else. Uh, obviously, there, the solution will not you know, be, be based on only one system. And we're already seeing that it's based on very many systems. Some of them are ground-based air defenses that are modern and Western to replace the old Soviet ones. Uh, there's not very many of those. Uh, but the other part of this equation, the other part of the solution is uh, providing uh, modern, relatively modern, fourth-generation Western fighter jets to help uh, uh, perform that function of defending the airspace. And I think this is uh, essentially the story of how we've come to this to this place where it appears that uh, F-16s are, are coming to Ukraine from various nations uh, sometimes in the next few months. Thank you. And, and this kind of gets to a, to, to, to a broader point that 
I think is maybe unfortunately somewhat overlooked in a lot of the discourse surrounding uh, fixed wing assets is that, you know, we, we are in this situation where both Ukraine's Soviet legacy fixed wing assets and ground-based air defense assets, their readiness and sustainability is, you know, deteriorating continually without much recourse to address that fact. There is a, a finite amount of munitions available in either case, and neither of them alone can provide the level of protection necessary for both Ukraine's population centers, critical infrastructure, and just military assets you know, deep in Ukraine, as well as uh, protection of Ukrainian forces and assets along the, uh, the forward line of troops. Neither one of them can do that alone. And... Given that they are both deteriorating, that sets up a, a very dangerous synergy that has to be corrected by both the provision of Western ground-based air defenses and Western fixed-wing assets. Absolutely, it's uh, it cannot be emphasized enough that that really this is uh, you know this is going to be broad solutions that are going to be required here. So we're we're focusing on one part of that, uh, an important part, but. Uh, uh, very much uh, the efforts have to be spread through uh, through all the aspects of the, uh, the air defense system, including the ground-based air defense systems. That naturally leads to the question, why F-16 specifically? There, there's obviously a number of airframes that are floating out there on, on the market. Really, the, the only four that are worth discussing are obviously F-16s, uh, the F-15, the F-18, and finally the Gripen, of course, from Sweden, you know, why the S-16 specifically, in your mind? I think uh, just just as you said, these are there are other options out there that uh, that may, in some ways, even be preferable to the S-16. But I don't think anything can really match the S-16's availability. You know, it has a lot of things going for it, but the simple fact that there are so many of them that have been made operated by so many countries that are friendly to Ukraine, including versions that are. Uh, fairly modern because, I mean, after all, the F-16 has been in production since the 70s. Some of the very early configurations would not actually be useful to Ukraine. But there are, uh, and we'll get into the into the versions, but it's, it's a simple fact that this would be the easiest aircraft to acquire in large quantities and be able to sustain over the coming years. Uh, because again, the availability of aircraft also means availability of spare parts. I think to contrast that, we can we can look at the at the Gripen, which has many things going for it, and I think is is well liked. But there are, simply doesn't seem to be any availability of any real number of airframes, which doesn't make it much of a contender. And the the other aspect to to the, the sustainment considerations here is just overall cost of operating, maintaining, and repairing the aircraft. You know, not just in terms of how much you know how many spare parts physically exist what's the you know size of the physical infrastructure needed to perform that sustainment but also the fact that the f-16 amongst those four options is by far the most inexpensive to to operate take for example the the gripen or the uh, the f-18 both would be more well optimized in terms of performance for dispersed operations such as operating off highways, operating off of uh, shorter runways, all of those things, which would be desirable characteristics for you know aircraft that Ukraine is to operate, given the threat and long-range fires. 
But the issue is, in addition to availability, they're all dramatically more expensive, both upfront and to operate, especially once you get into the, the, the twin engine aspect. That alone effectively doubles the operating cost. And then finally, there's the F-15, which is arguably the most performant fit, uh, fourth aircraft in existence, but it is monstrously expensive uh, to operate as well. It's just upfront. And the cost, uh, a number of Ukrainian analysts and commentators have, have, have made reference to this, is that cost, go, both currently and going forward, probably the largest constraint in terms of the assets that Ukraine can operate, especially in the long term, because consider that before the invasion, their annual defense budget was only $6 billion. And these aircraft, any of them, are already going to be dramatically more expensive to operate than a MiG-29 or an Su-27. So in terms of their ability and ready force, cost is an absolutely enormous factor. Very good point. Moving to European F-16 specifically, we've kind of decided to maybe stay away from the discussion of US F-16s, at least for today, because I, I think we both need to get a lot more deep into the details for those to have an informative discussion about it. But the international coalition at this point seems to be consisting of the Netherlands, Norway, and Denmark in terms of potentially providing airframes themselves, as well as potentially training with Belgium, potentially being able to uh, contribute some uh, training capabilities as well. I've seen discussions that Poland will also be involved in that training effort. And then finally, the UK will be providing some sort of training of an unclear nature. That's right. That that seems to be the picture that we're getting. Um, I think all indications are that uh, uh, in the short term, uh, the F-16s coming to Ukraine will come from Europe. Uh, obviously, nobody has uh, publicly at least committed any quantity of aircraft, but uh, it is reasonable to assume that those nations that, uh, that you've listed would be the source of the first F-16s for Ukraine, which is why we're focusing our attention and efforts on on kind of researching and analyzing those as opposed to, uh, you know, US F-16s that are stored in the, in the desert, for example. So in terms of the capability of the specific F-16s that exist in European inventories, what is the, the general contours of, you know, what, what variants are they operating? You know, how modernized are, are they? And I guess, well, we probably start with how many exist first off. Yeah, so if uh, we... Uh, Go back in time a little bit. Uh, the F-16 was originally uh, purchased by several NATO states uh, in the early 70s and into the 80s. Uh, it was essentially uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, Denmark, and Norway that were the original F-16 users in Europe. Uh, many of their F-16s were actually manufactured uh, in Europe under license. They kind of wound down there purchasing a brand new F-16s by the late 80s, um, unlike the US, for example, which continued to uh, procure F-16s at you know, a slower pace in the 90s, but they still did so in the 90s and into the early 2000s. So the Europeans purchased F-16s of the A single seat and B twin seat models, uh, while the US uh, also has Cs and Ds in its inventory. Well, I mean, at this point, only Cs and Ds in its inventory. Uh, and the reason I mentioned that is because, in effect, the U.S. continued incorporating improvements to the F-16 at the production line, so to speak, basically by buying newer versions of the F-16. While Europe completed their process of purchasing F-16s in the late 80s, and there came a point about a decade later when they had to 
decide what to do with the fact that there's there was a uh, this capability gap developing between what the F16 could do and what their specific F16s could do their solution was to uh, do an upgrade program essentially it's known as the midlife upgrade or MLU the upgrades are quite extensive they don't do much for the airframe or engine but they do a lot uh, to the avionics and in terms of avionics you know broadly speaking uh, the MLU was kind of based on what was being manufactured uh, on the assembly line at the time for the US Air Force which was a block 50 or 52 depending on the engine F16 so which is to say that uh, you know maybe it's a bit oversimplified but an F16 that went through the MLU upgrade was essentially in terms of avionics uh, which is important like radar and the like was equivalent to US Air Force block 50s uh, not all of the F16s that were procured by those European states were upgraded to the MLU standard uh, because by that point you know some were lost and could not be upgraded and some were not intended to be kept in service the upgrade program all finished in the early 2000s but uh, it's important to state that there are further improvements that are always happening to the configuration of those aircraft uh, especially through software updates some highlights of you know what the MLU can do that the the previous version that it was based on can't is you know the uh, ability to fire uh, in 120 missiles char the uh, active uh, radar homing long range air to air missiles something the early F16s uh, did not have in their arsenal uh and also uh, many other new uh, munitions including uh integration with the harm missile that we've heard a lot about uh, this is the anti radiation anti radar missile that is being used kind of in a very limited mode of employment currently on Ukrainian MiG-29s and, and Su-27s so uh it is uh better integrated with with those European F16s that's that's really a broad look at the capabilities uh, the uh, radar on those MLU uh, F16s was swapped out as well for an upgraded radar which had to do with the ability to uh, to work with the AM120 but uh, is generally broadly equivalent to an F16C's radar i think again might be an oversimplification but i think it's uh, it's it's a fair one for our discussion and it would be good to have some contrast what capabilities does the the F16 bring to the table uh compared to either you know a MiG-29 SU-27 um as first foremost in the the air to air role as well as in the air to ground role in the case of the uh, SU-24M and the SU-25 i think in the air to air role the number one thing is the ability to have these long range fire and forget as missiles uh, again referring to the AM120 because it is an active radar homing missile instead of a semi-active radar homing missile which is what the Ukrainians are using now it offers a lot more tactical flexibility you can launch it at a target and and you can maneuver your aircraft away which is something Ukrainians are are not able to do right now Ukrainian pilots cannot do that which puts them at a severe disadvantage relative to uh, their adversaries uh, it also means that an F16 can fire a multitude of those missiles as many as it's carrying at each one at an individual target which is something a Ukrainian MiG-29 or Su-27 cannot do today they can target only one enemy aircraft at a time and again they have to essentially sort of continue flying towards it in a straight line until the, until the missile reaches the target again a bit of an oversimplification but uh, uh, that's something that would sort of go away with the S16 that's a major thing i think there are kind of finer points that would be a little more Uh, dependent on the actual situation and what i'm thinking here specifically is 
the F-16's much more modern and advanced radar uh, would allow it to have better look-down, shoot-down capability, which would come into play in a couple of ways. One uh, is its ability to detect low-flying targets such as uh, cruise missiles or those yeah, suicide drones. Uh, for those instances where the F-16 is being used uh, to defend targets in the Ukrainian rear from those almost nightly uh, Russian attacks. Uh, that same capability would also uh, be helpful if there was a way to use the F-16s to help defend the troops at the forward line of engagement uh, to try and use those F-16s to intercept enemy helicopters or Su-25s that are you know trying to to attack uh, Ukrainian ground forces, perhaps with those uh, lofted rocket attacks that we've seen. On that note, I mean, I, I it's difficult to get too deep into the specifics of this without knowing the the specific variants and the you know, specific associated radar um, evolutions. And this kind of also gets into the question of whether or not the U.S. will end up delivering any airframes ourselves and what versions they would be. But one of the stated desires um, to in terms of the application of these aircraft is a more effective ability to deny uh, Russian fixed-wing assets, uh, such as yeah, SU-34, SU-35, all the their, their various fixed-wing platforms that the Russians are currently operating to more effectively deny them the ability to approach and penetrate the Ukrainian forward line of troops. That said, it's probably, at least in, in my assessment, it's going to be difficult to achieve that to the desired extent. The units themselves are still quite old and i'm not sure that they have the range to effectively support the aim-120d for example air-to-air combat still going to be tricky we should probably acknowledge that as a as a you know likely limitation at least for the immediate future yeah that's a good point and i think it's worth pointing out that if you're just doing a, a very simple head-to-head comparison with some of uh, the most advanced enemy fighters like let's say the su-35 then I don't think we can really make the claim that the F-16 MLU would bring a kind of parity there. Uh, I think in terms of the capability to fire AIM-120 missiles, that that would negate the R-77 that uh, the Russian Air Force is using, but not necessarily their super long-range R-37s. Although, of course, it's a more complicated story than that. We would also not be able to claim that uh, the S-16 MLU has a longer detection range than the Su-35's radar. The Su-35, of course, has the advantage of being a newer aircraft with a larger fuselage, allowing for a larger antenna and more heat dissipation for, for more power going to that antenna. So the S-16 is always going to be at a bit of a disadvantage, especially with you know a, a 25-year-old radar. That also gets to another interesting capability that I think is it's under discussed, but is of critical importance. That of specifically ISR and targeting pods. Um, as far as I'm aware, the Ukrainian Air Force doesn't really have anything what I would call analogous to a Western ISR targeting pod. Is that correct? Yeah, that's safe to say. I think the capabilities that are in the uh, Bayraktar TB2 uh, drone are about as close as as, as you're going to get. And and this also extends to the Russians to some extent. As far as I'm aware, they operate not that many targeting pods. I've, I've seen very little evidence that they have, you know, maybe beyond one or two types of them that are not in very widespread service. So this is a 
a deficit that both Ukraine and Russia suffer from that is rather ubiquitous among um, Western aircraft, such as we have, for example, the sniper targeting pod, the lantern uh, uh, targeting pod, and then we have uh, HTS, the harm targeting system for uh, anti-radiation purposes specifically. The F-16 MLUs, the, the specific compatibility will depend on what specific software version they have, which... I'm not super familiar with off the top of my head, Alex. I'm not sure if you're more well-versed in that than I am. I've only enough to say that uh, certainly the uh, capability to use the harm targeting system, the HTS pod, is there on at least some of the MLU, depending on the software they run. However, I'm not sure that European Air Forces were actually using the HTS pod, but uh, of course those could be procured elsewhere, like the United States. So if you have aircraft that are already compatible with it, then, you know, that's half the battle. Right. And so the, the reason why I highlight this is that Ukraine will hopefully, presumably, receive at least some number of targeting pods uh, with the delivery of these airframes. I'd be very surprised if they didn't. But if and when they receive those targeting pods, that would open up a, a range of very interesting possibilities. And, and one particular one I'd just like to highlight currently for Gimler's fire missions or the employment of uh, JDAM or JDAM ER, what they're currently doing is something to the effect of they have a particular target in mind. They know it's rough location. They're queuing up uh, satellite-based imagery of that location, then using that imagery to mensurate the target, generate a set of coordinates, usually pass to the United States. We refine that to, to give them some extra precision and accuracy. And then they plug that into their munitions on the ground prior to takeoff. Then they, you know, sortie, go prosecute their targets, return to base, etc. Once you have targeting pods, then you can start to do some very interesting stuff where you can really do this dynamic targeting and mensuration whereby you don't necessarily need to spend one to two hours per target mensurating it with imagery intelligence. And instead, you could have your targeting pod, you know, if it's within uh, the, the field of view of that targeting pod on an aircraft, it can generate coordinates based upon that aircraft's, you know, relative position, relative velocity and, and other parameters on the fly within the span of, of seconds to minutes that can be uploaded to munitions on board the aircraft, JDAMs, etc. Or, especially if the Ukrainians end up with uh, Link-16 capabilities, if we enable that for them, they can do things like have an aircraft uh, performing ISR, doing targeting with one of these pods that can then be passed to other aircraft uh, with munitions such as JDAM or Storm Shadow or any number of other options or to ground-based fires such as uh, Gimlers from HIMARS or MLRS. Just to, uh, to uh, add to what John said here, that's, um, that would be a very novel capability. That would be a real breakthrough for the Ukrainian Air Force. That would be uh, you know, light years ahead of uh, anything that they have now. I mean, if you look at uh, reconnaissance asset like, uh, like the Su-24MR or the Anton-30, I mean, you're looking at a very long chain of events that have to take place for you to actually, you know, extract some data from those platforms. Really, uh, just just again to emphasize that uh, Western targeting pods would uh, would be just uh, just light years ahead. Would also be you know a challenge for training because nobody has any experience using those. But uh, you know, lots of lots of challenges to overcome. Anyways, good problem to have. Uh, I see Colby has come up. Uh, Colby, please go ahead. Thanks. 
uh, just on the topic of Russian targeting pods, Thales makes one called Damocles, I believe it is, and Russia had some interest in uh, either purchasing or ultimately license producing that system. But as far as I know, the de- deal was never followed through with. And um, after uh, the sanctions, after Crimea went into effect, that would have precluded that contract from being signed. So they never were able to to get that technology from France. And off the top of my head, I don't know of really any domestic systems that have entered any sort of widespread service, which kind of reflects sort of doctrinal differences between NATO air forces and the Russian air force with the emphasis, you know, on PGMs on our side and, and the Russians still using a lot of uh, dumb bombs by comparison. Right. Thank you, Colby. Yeah, I believe Rusi and a couple of the other um, think tanks analysis have, have identified this as a as a pretty persistent problem uh, for, for the Russians since day one in terms of just overall deficiencies in their their, their ISR capabilities and targeting cycle. Uh, I see random is up. And then after that, we will I guess, proceed onward with discussion of uh, specific inventory figures. Random, please go ahead. Hey, guys. So, John, I linked you something. One of the, since we're talking about F-16s, uh, Radio Svoboda came out and just did an article with Ukrainian Air Force General Serhii Globosov. I shared that with Jonathan and you, uh, so I could put that in the nest if you'd like, uh, where he goes over what F-16 capabilities they have. But since we're talking recon pods, I do know that the Belgians and the Netherlands on their MLUs use the Reese targeting pods, and they also have capabilities for the lantern i think on some of the f-16s in the netherlands air force so there there are recon targeting systems that they use on that i do know that the belgians also had like an ew suite version but because the mlu process is like so varied by country like each one of them like even the danes have their own version but like uniformly the reese pod is something that the f-16s use among the european ones thank you very much and yes that, that would any european uh, hardware or assets that have been integrated would also be uh, an option as well to be delivered alongside these. Alex, uh, that said, um, I know that you have compiled uh, a list of F-16s that exist in inventory in uh, Netherlands, Denmark, and uh, Norway. Uh, do you want to have a run through uh, that? Yeah, let's uh, let's touch on that. Um, the reason um, I was looking at those three countries uh, in particular is because... Uh, they're the most likely to be a source of F-16s in the short term. Belgium said they, they are not in a position to provide any. Um, I think that's worth a closer look in the sense that, you know, in the future, not too distant future, they might become a source, but they are now. Uh, Portugal operates F-16s as well. They were not one of the original operators uh, in Europe, but they do now. But they likely need uh, all the F-16s they have for their own purposes. So I'm, I've skipped them for now as well. So we have the Netherlands. Denmark and Norway. The Netherlands and Denmark are still operating some of their F-16s, while others are in storage. While all of Norway's F-16s are now in storage as of uh, the end of 2021, I believe. Uh, all those countries are getting F-35s to replace them, essentially. The numbers in total would add up to about 140 airframes. This is a mix of active and stored aircraft. What this does not include is aircraft that have been used for other purposes that, uh, in my view, make them unrecoverable, aircraft that have gone to museums or become uh, training aids and, you know, aviation colleges. Those have been kind of culled from the list. 
So this this was actually uh, basically an airframe by airframe count to uh, to get to those uh, figures. So if uh, we look at uh, the Netherlands as an example, they have uh, about 23 F-16s in service right now. Some might, might have moved into storage because uh, you know it's hard to get uh, the very latest data. Some of the data on, on which aircraft is active uh, could be you know let's say two years old, uh, and they also have. 25 aircraft in storage. Yeah, the Netherlands is interesting because since they are not planning to train any more F-16 pilots, the only aircraft they have in active service right now are all single-seaters. And their remaining twin-seaters, the F-16BM models, are all in storage. So in addition to the 23 active aircraft, they also have 25 uh, aircraft in storage. The Netherlands has been quite vocal, um, relatively speaking, in their support for um, providing uh, fighter jets to Ukraine again, without short of making an actual commitment of like, you know X number of airframes by such and such date. But it definitely seems like the stored F-16s that they have are likely to be uh, some of the first that Ukraine might get. Uh, time will tell, but uh, I did want to highlight that. Uh, Denmark doesn't have very many stored aircraft. Most of their F-16 MLUs are still in service, uh, and uh, as I said, Norway's are all in service. Next. We should probably mention that uh, some of these aircraft have been committed uh, via various contracts or letters of intent to be sold to other parties. So they may not actually be available to Ukraine, uh, although the situation there is never 100% clear, not until they're delivered to this uh, potential other customer. So a big example would be that out of the 46 F-16s that Norway has that I count as uh, being stored but recoverable, uh, 32 have in theory been committed to be sold to Romania, uh, while others may, although we hear they're likely not, going to be sold to Drayton. Uh, we've also heard that some of uh, the Dutch F-16s were supposed to be sold to Drayton International as well, but uh, uh, it's been said that that deal has been canceled, which of course helps boost numbers of available aircraft that, that could potentially go to Ukraine. I think if we're talking about numbers, this might be a good time to bring up the fact that a stored aircraft uh, may not be immediately available to deliver to another air force, even if the political decision was made. This has to be with has been retired in kind of what I would call an orderly fashion. That's usually done by trying to be efficient. So in the example of the Norwegian F-16s, uh, while they were being retired for a long time, they were retiring about one F-16 per month. And that would be an aircraft that would have reached the point that it needed major work. You know, an airframe or an engine or both uh, needed to be overhauled. So that would be the aircraft that would be retired. That leads me to believe that many of their aircraft would uh, would actually uh, need overhaul before being delivered. Of course, at the end of this orderly retirement process, you know, when you're down to the last 10 aircraft, you're probably going to retire them all at once. So I do expect that at least some of that group of stored aircraft uh, would still have some life left in them. And it might be it might be wise to provide them first and then replace them with freshly overhauled aircraft and cycle them back for, for overhaul. So that's kind of a long-winded way of saying that uh, uh, just because we're you know listing aircraft that are available, we're not necessarily saying they're available on zero days notice and maybe months. And, and that's actually a very different conversation, the ability to overhaul uh, the correct or the required amount of engines and airframes. Uh, I'm sure it can be done, uh, 
but there are reasons why that could be a challenge for industry. Uh, probably a topic for another day, though. I would say overall, 140 aircraft is is are out there in those three nations. They will not be available immediately, but over the coming couple of years, as they're all uh, retired, uh, they should be in the long term available to Ukraine. Right. So, uh, would you agree that I guess kind of a middle of the road? Well, I shouldn't say middle of the road. An upper limit, um, a tentative upper limit for how many. European airframes we could expect from these two countries would be, in, in the long term here, it would be 100, maybe conservatively closer to 40 or 50. Who would you say that's a, a conservative long-term estimate? I think I think it is. I think that's right, John. I mean, if we look uh, at the Dutch alone, uh, we we could we could say that uh, about half their aircraft are, are, should be available shortly because they're already in storage, while the remaining aircraft should be available in the next year, year and a half. Uh, because they will be retired, so that would that by itself would kind of get us into that forty fifty ballpark. And then the the other thing I wanted to that I wanted to mention was, Brandon, please go ahead. Uh, while, while I try to remember what I was going to say, yeah, so outlined in the article by uh, in the interview with General, name escapes me. Hang on a sec, General uh, Golopsov. Basically, they're outlining the need for like three to four squ- squadrons to meet Ukraine's needs to mess up Russian. Uh, air capabilities. So we're looking at 48 to 64 planes in that regard, if that is panning out right. So that would be in the ballpark. The other thing I would probably say is if we're going to start a betting pool about which country uh, sends the first F-16s, I'm pretty sure everybody would pick the Dutch at this point for obvious reasons, given the push to send them and also from the rumblings about the obvious uh, payback option for MH17, the shoot down by our friend Sour Gherkin Gherkin. The other thing is, I wanted to throw this out there as a question to the group. Uh, given the obvious uh, effect that Storm Shadow is having, especially today with multiple strikes, and the Germans uh, wanting to uh, offer the Taurus missile, and given the F-16's capabilities do we see down the road if Ukraine, when Ukraine gets F-16s, that if they would be outfitted with the Jasm standoff missile, which is basically the American version of Storm Shadow? Yes or no? So in terms of Jasm, I believe we have around, it was, we have about 2,000-ish Jasm, well, 1,500-ish to 2,000 Jasms in inventory. We're currently ramping production to about 1,000 per year. Um, to to, dra- to to drastically increase the size of our stockpile, um, and then we have about I think thousand ish uh, Larassum's long range anti ship missile, which is the anti ship derivative of Jasm in inventory as well. That would be from a logistical standpoint, that'd be the easiest option if we wanted to have a, that st- long range standoff capability from an F sixteen. If the U.S. was unwilling to provide them for either political or readiness reasons, which is entirely foreseeable. It probably wouldn't be too horrifically difficult to integrate Storm Shadow or Taurus with the F-16. It's, it'll probably take a couple months, but it's probably doable. I spoke to some contacts affiliated with MVDA, and they also th- their opinion seemed to be that that type of integration would be feasible, though again, it might take a couple months, and a similar situation would be theoretically possible if if some of the, the radar limitations were to be overcome with newer S-16s from, say, the U.S., but there was a 
a lack of AIM-20Ds than, for example, a Meteor integration, uh, the UK's long-range air-to-air missile, that stuff like that might be possible as well. Alex, do you have anything you want to add to that? No, I think that about covers that. I just, uh, I, I just think if uh, you know it could be integrated onto the Su-24, then certainly uh, integrating on the F-16 should be a cakewalk. I, I just, I just, I had the, I, I fell down that rabbit hole looking at it because <laughs> because they they did test the JASM originally on a pre-Block 20 F-16, so obviously the Block 50s use them and the Polish variants use them, so obviously the cakewalk is implied. I was just curious about what you guys thought of the possibility. I believe the MLU has been explicitly upgraded with the capacity to, to launch JASM with the long software upgrades. I believe and it explicitly has that ability. Yeah. I think that's the Dutch one too. Look, the Dutch are everywhere today. And also th- uh, thank you for, for that question. Cause that you, you totally mentioned what I, what I wanted to, to, to proceed to next was, how many Ukrainians are requesting? My my understanding is that at the very beginning of the invasion, they requested 180 airframes, which corresponds to the exact number needed to bring all five of their tactical aviation brigades um, to full strength with Western airframes. Um, so a uh, tactical aviation brigade is three squadrons of 12 aircraft each. So 36 aircraft per brigade multiplied that by five. For those operating MiG 29s and SU 27s, that gets you 180 for full and plus the two tactical aviation brigades operating SU 24s and SU 25s. That's an additional 72 airframes to bring them up to full strength. I believe they've recently reduced their ask as of a couple months ago to 128, which is three brigade, three and a half brigades ish, so maybe three with some spares. But I suspect that obviously the, the number in the short term, the next six to 12 months will probably be much lower than that. Alec, what is your assessment of, I guess, how, what, what's the final number that we're probably looking at here in terms of a request? It looks like uh, they really zeroed in on this uh, four squadron, 48 aircraft number recently. It, it seems to have come out uh, from a few official Ukrainian sources, uh, which is interesting because it's not really... Um, a full conversion of the force to be like an, an F-16 only force. It's, it's clearly a partial replacement. So it, it does make one wonder why they're not asking for more. But at the same time, you know, it just might be a more realistic number in terms of how many could be get, you know, in the coming, oh, I don't know, six to 12 months, let's say. And so what kind of, uh, of time frame do you think we'd be looking at, at here for both pilot training and airframe deliveries and i guess what kind of you know fate i assume we'll see some sort of phase system for airframe and and uh for airframe deliveries and pilot training completion yeah i think we have a lot of variables at play here uh i guess we can and we should touch on some of them at least uh, a big variable is how quickly can ukraine provide uh, pilots to wherever they're going to receive this conversion training, right? If, if Ukraine isn't uh, able to provide very many all at once, then the process of qualifying pilots is going to go slowly and there'll be no point in, in providing very many aircraft if there are enough pilots to fly them. Similarly, Ukraine could provide a lot of pilots all at once, but would there be the capacity to uh, convert them to F-16s with whatever resources uh, the a fighter jet coalition assigns because it's this is something that uh, you know what this solution is going to look like is going to be very interesting 
how exactly uh, they're going to do uh, perform this task of training Ukrainian F-16 pilots because it's been said that this would be done in Europe, so not uh, not in Arizona where a lot of the F-16 training for customers worldwide really takes place. Uh, this is where the Dutch were training their pilots for decades up until uh, recently when they shut that program down for a lack of need of new pilots. So if an F-16 training unit is established in Europe somewhere, or perhaps a few smaller units are established in various European nations that are willing to contribute to this effort, um, there would be uh, a fairly high demand on airframes and instructors and even simulators to uh, make that process go along smoothly. I think the you know the best assessment we have in terms of how long it might take a qualified Ukrainian fighter pilot uh, to be retrained to, to the F-16, assuming they have adequate language skills, is the leaked report from the 162nd Air National Guard wing uh, out of Arizona. And they've said that they, in their assessment, you know, they, they could be done in about four months. So uh, I think, you know, and this is this is a bit arbitrary, but uh, bear with me. Uh, I think that a that a class size of of twenty would would be really desirable. Would be really great if if we starting next month. Over the course of four months, uh, somehow, twenty Ukrainian fighter pilots could be uh, qualified on the F-16. I think that's that's kind of a reasonable request, but uh, even that would require a commitment of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ballparking here, surely at least fifteen aircraft to be full time dedicated to this. So these would be aircraft that are already active with, you know, either the Portuguese, Dutch. Uh, or Danish Air Force, perhaps the Polish. They, they're not a great match because their F-16s are more advanced. They're not quite in the right configuration, but um, better than nothing. Uh, so we'll we'll really need to see how this ta- this problem is tackled by the European nations that are trying to help, and also the United States, which is you know not contributing aircraft. Um, but uh, this this will be this will be a tricky exercise if if a mixed unit of various F-16s and various instructors from different European nations needs to be established. Uh, that would be really kind of an unprecedented uh, uh, exercise. So it will come down to how many pilots can be produced. I think could be could be qualified over 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 one training cycle or you know per month per year. Uh, while the aircraft deliveries will likely depend on how many of them require overhaul before delivery and how many overhauls could be performed by uh, the industrial partners at a given time, which is not an obvious question to answer because you could look at how many they were able to do last year, for example, but that is not to say that this year uh, there are enough uh, critical spare parts in the pipeline uh, to support those overhauls. If the industry was expecting, you know, F-16 MLU flight hours worldwide to actually be going down because they'd be retired, uh, some of the longer lead time items could be in short supply. So there really are a lot of variables. I'm not sure we'll be able to uh, make a great prediction without starting to get some data on what those, some of those critical areas are. Thank you. I guess uh, as, as we're moving to, to kind of wrap up here in the next uh, Five ten minutes. Um, the other thing that's been on my mind is presumably most of these European airframes they are, shall we say, in the in the twilight hours of their remaining airframe lifespan, um, compared to say you know some of the the, the newer uh, F sixteens that the U S is operating. 
Um, that's, I imagine that's going to be, I guess, n- not a short term necessarily, but a long term challenge for the, for the Ukrainian Air Force uh, in terms of sustaining these aircraft, particularly post-war. The, the cost of that will increase with time. Um, they're probably going to have to either do some rather expensive refurbs of them or get replacements for them. What, what is your sense of what that long-term challenge will be in terms of sustaining these older airframes? I think the challenge is going to be very much real. Um, one contributing factor is that, again, with these aircraft generally heading for retirement or you know, in the process of doing that, uh, the nations that were operating them, you know, being uh, rational actors, would have uh, done um, an exercise to basically reduce their stock of spare parts by trying to, you know, cleverly stopping to procure spare parts um, as, you know, the retirement dates near, which means they might have airframes to give, but they don't necessarily have a great stock of spare parts to provide. The Dutch were already struggling with that for their remaining S-16s because they reduced their um, spare part stock so much that uh, the aircraft that they still needed to have in service this year and next year uh, had pretty poor availability because oftentimes they were they are waiting to be repaired. So that is a challenge. Um, I will point out that realistically, uh, Ukrainians will expect their F-16s to fly quite a bit less than, than, than some of these Western nations, which will artificially extend their life and also uh, reduce the demand for spare parts. But there will be a pull on uh, technical personnel, both in Ukraine and in friendly countries, to uh, perform the work that will be necessary to maintain them. Uh, and uh, no, it will not be easy, but we should keep in mind that that uh, the ancient Soviet air aircraft that Ukraine is operating already uh, are very demanding in terms of uh, what it takes to keep them keep them flying as well. So I am not sure the F-16 will actually be worse than that. I expect that an F-16 that replaces the MiG-29 will actually end up uh, flying quite a bit more sorties, you know, per week, per month than that uh, MiG-29 that I replaced. And, and on that note, one thing that I, I had been considering, this has been discussed somewhat and uh, publicly about this, is there is always the possibility that, and it's something I, I think I might personally advocate for, is doing something of a, of a phased approach whereby the United States, Europe provides airframes first, the older ones, the MLUs, and then um, in the intervening time that buys us, the United States can uh, potentially supply some of the more modern um, F-16s from our stocks. And what this will enable us to do is it's, it, so it's inevitable that there are going to be F-16s lost in Ukraine. It's just inevitable. There's, they're going to be shot down by SAMs. They're going to be lost to Russian air-to-air. There'll probably be some crashes. There'll be some just lost due to not the best maintenance and repair work. It's just inevitable. So as those airframes are attrited, it would be valuable to have that supply of more recent, more modern F-16s that are more sustainable long-term are of course in and of themselves more capable. Um, and I guess more importantly is in the short term, having that kind of phased approach would, en- would enable Ukraine to exploit things like Link 16 and other data links, such as to example, have, you know, 
a squad, well, most of a squadron made up of NLUs, but one or two more modern F-16s, say from maybe the United States or Poland, that have actually competitive radars with uh, modern Russian airframes. Um, they can, you know, provide, you know, uh, targeting data. The others can act as munitions carriers for either air-to-air missiles, AMRAMs, or uh, air-to-surface, etc. There's a lot of different play there and that, that we have in terms of options to, I guess, either mitigate or perhaps even exploit the the, the, the opportunity that this affords us. Yeah, those are great examples of capabilities and opportunities that will become available to Ukraine when the F-16 is uh, in inventory, things that that simply are not possible right now with the existing equipment. And those are also all examples of really improving the entire system. Uh, those uh, those things that you mentioned, the integration uh, via Link 16, let's say, with uh, other elements of the air defense system, that's that's really a whole a whole new level of capability that that simply isn't there right now. Oh, absolutely! Being able to integrate that with you know, via Link sixteen or, or excuse me, the Link sixteen or some other data link or communications protocol with say IBCS or even in the absence of that, you know, any of these other platforms would would dramatically and enhance the capabilities of of all of these platforms you know, together as a system. Yeah, and and it's. It's so important because it's actually hard to wrap your mind around it because it's 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 a lot easier to just say, well, you know, I'm comparing an F-16 to to some Russian Air Force fighter, uh, but that would not really be a complete analysis without getting into these very details of not just what is that individual F-16 capable of, but um, really the system level improvements and new capabilities that it brings. Well, thank you very much, Alex. I believe we are. Uh, just about at time. It is uh, uh, two hours into our broadcast. Um, if nobody else has uh, any questions, follow-ups uh, on F-16s, I will go ahead and um, hand it over to uh, Jonathan and Joseph. Alex, it was, thank you for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you, man. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Toshni Weekly. We broadcast every Sunday at 1800 UTC. Uh, please do uh, tune in live or check out the podcast on the many platforms available of your choice where we upload all our content. And uh, do follow the main account on Twitter for announcements and updates on future projects and interviews. We've got a few few things in the works, guys, so please do stay tuned. We want to thank our panelists and our guests, Alex and Vasil, and uh, all our listeners for tuning in. And uh, we'll see everyone next week. Slava Ukraini. Всім добрий вечір. Всі ми тут. On behalf of the brain. On behalf of our warriors. On behalf of the brain. Wings for freedom. Шановні громадяни України!